Our scripture lesson this morning comes from Daniel chapter 6. Daniel 6, and we're just reading two verses, verses 14 and 15. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, No, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Amen, dear saints. It is joyful to be among you today. <clears throat> We're continuing in this most exciting sixth chapter of Daniel, not going through it quickly. There's so much there that we want to parcel it out, <clears throat> digest it a little bit at a time, bringing into our souls new and afresh the bread of life, Jesus, the man of God. Let's pray, shall we? Father, feed us that feast of Jesus again, we pray. Grant us the grace to love you more through this sermon. May the people of God be built up in their most holy faith, fortified in Jesus Christ, unafraid of anything that the world or the laws of the world would throw at them, being completely confident in Christ, willing to pray, suffer, obey, rejoice, and be glorified. All in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So if you noticed it, this is a highly relevant text that we just had read by us by Elder Wayne a few moments ago. It really does apply to us these days in these dangerous and challenging trying times. Just when there might seem to be no reasonable hope whatsoever for anyone in the world, God sends forth his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And he sends him again to us every Sunday in the glories of the church's worship to feed the people of God the encouragement that we need in the person of the second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ. Just when the world may seem to have the true church backed into, if you will, the corner of a cosmic law-driven chess game checkmate conundrum, God comes to our rescue again in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just when it seems that it's impossible, the law cannot be revoked, cannot be changed, there's no way out, God provides a way out in Jesus Christ. And it's a glorious supernatural exit for us as well. The way of the world, that is the title of our sermon, does pose for us its challenges, <clears throat> its threats, its scary specters. But again, we as the church have all the confidence in the universe, in our glorious and good Heavenly Father, who has provided us everything we need in Christ his Son, and now has given us the fullness of the Holy Spirit and clothed us in Christ's righteousness and given us the protection of the armor of God. He will indeed always does extricate us from every evil, no matter what it is or how foreboding it seems. And therefore, because this is true, let's make it our goal on this resurrection Lord's Day to rest in Jesus as God's beloved church. We'll be studying Daniel six, fourteen and fifteen. <clears throat> Title of the sermon The Way of the World, the Doctrine the world seeks to enslave the saints and our allies with and in their evil laws. Now, we are living exhibits of this truth these days, but we're not alone. This fact has been going on ever since the fall of man into sin, 
And even here, the the great high and mighty Medo-Persian emperor Darius gets trapped by his own laws, his own words. And this thing isn't new. It's been around a long time. Human beings are law mongers, and those outside of Christ wish to bind us up in their laws. Indeed, we're created in the image of God, and therefore law is written in our hearts. It is part of our DNA. There's no way around it. And when sinners go into full-out rebellion against the generous, good, gracious lawgiver, God in Jesus Christ, and he does that in the glories of the gospel because Christ bears that law for us. When sinners go into rebellion against him, their desire is to lock us into a jail, escape from which they consider impossible and inconceivable, like these laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be changed or revoked. They think they have an airtight seal on us. But our God is infinitely greater than they are, and he achieves for us the humanly unimaginable. So still, let us accept the fact as a reality that the world seeks to enslave the saints and our allies with and in their evil laws. First, they do this out of frustration with their inferior status. Now, this is an interesting and intriguing fact. The truth is, even though it's never acknowledged, and in many cases not even comprehended in the minds of sinners, but it is true that Satan and the world are jealous of the redeemed, forgiven saints of Christ's church. We have what they will never possess without bowing the knee to the same Messiah that by God's grace we have submitted ourselves to in love. They are envious of the fact that we're not under condemnation, not under judgment, that our sins are gone. The problem that they face at the deepest level is always there for them, no matter how often they try to expunge it by any means whatsoever, suppression or anything else. It's always there. And so there is this envy of our liberty in Christ, even if they never realize it or comprehend it. And when people get frustrated, that's when they start doing crazy things, weird things, even things that could turn out to their detriment. Like these these bureaucrats in Medo-Persia weren't so stupid, probably, as to realize that if they trapped their king, that might have a bad consequence for them. And yet, out of their vexation, Their exasperation, they do it anyway, because they are really beside themselves. They can't match Daniel in his personal or ecclesiastical or character excellence. They are no match for him and his ascendancy in the kingdom, where Darius had planned to exalt him even higher than the other three that he was with, to like second in command. They couldn't take care of getting rid of Daniel in any of the ordinary ways, like scouring the books and see if he'd been corrupt, if he'd been pilfering money or leaving the office too early. They checked everything. They came up zero. Nothing against him whatsoever. So out of this utter vexation, they roll the dice and they take this huge calculated risk, 
knowing that in so doing they would be entrapping their own great high and mighty emperor king Darius through their plotting and their scheming. Now, that's how desperate sinners are in their rebellion against Christ. Don't ever fool yourself. That's what's going on in the lives of the people that you know that are outside of Jesus. And we were there too. And the more we understand this, the more we comprehend that that is what the fallen nature of man is, where we were and where people are. They will do things which otherwise they probably wouldn't do out of self-preservation or desire to maintain some reputation. But remember that these Medo-Persian bureaucrats were so exasperated that they do this kind of thing, entrapping and scheming. They also wanted to, in their effort, their insane drive, disentangle themselves from anything having to do with the true God and this troublesome guy in the kingdom that by his very life was, was a repudiation of them. So there's this desire to just get rid of this guy, this God, this church, this gospel, this truth, this thing about the true God that had entered their culture through the exile of the Jews into originally Babylon. Boost one's self up in one's own eyes by putting down the people of God. But for you, the redeemed saints of the true church, we take our calm and full, complete and absolute assurance in the glorious person of Jesus Christ and the freedoms we have in our forgiven state as the church of God. So the world does seek to enslave the saints and our allies with and in their evil laws. They do this out of frustration with their inferior status, and they would crush, crush everyone's liberties in order to get their way. You know, if Satan could no longer be a truly free agent, a truly free moral agent after his fall from heaven, remembering that Satan, Lucifer, fell from heaven before Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, If he can no longer have that freedom, then he's going to do everything he can to make every other moral, rational agent creation of God as miserable as he can. And that's why he came into the garden in Genesis 3 and tempted the woman and led Adam into the enslavement to sin that we are all conceived in as fallen creatures. But it was all part of a great, glorious plan of God, as Satan's always simply doing the will of God, even against his own will. And there's fallen, unregenerate human beings do the same thing as their spiritual master and father, Satan himself. The idea simply put is simply this, if I cannot be happy, then you can't be happy either. That's really kind of what's going on here in chapter 6 of Daniel. But the glory for the true saint is this. So long as we have and love Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our joy, our freedom, and our happiness can never be taken away from us. Now, it is true that they can take away from us some of our civil liberties and privileges that we've grown accustomed to and really do value. I think for American Christians, this is at least for myself, this is really one of the the troubling struggles 
you know, we, we kind of live in this weird bubble of history where the, the church had this remarkable freedom. Not only ultimacy of freedom in Jesus, but even the residual freedoms of civil liberties and things like that, which they do and are taking away from us. But the most important things, and, I, and let's face it, that's not an easy thing, but think about it this way. The most important and valuable things they can never deprive us of. Those are ours forever and ever and ever upon our regeneration in this world as members of Christ and his church. And all this is because of God's and life's riches are found in Jesus alone, as per Paul's words of Colossians 2.3, where he wrote, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, all of them. Let's look at these interesting two verses, 14, 15, chapter 6, Daniel, and practice the church's compassion with regard to the way of the world. We're going to take an interesting angle in these, uh, the short scripture lesson, considering it today. And our compassion actually gets personified for us in the person of the presumed to be still an unbeliever, Darius. So Darius becomes sort of this interesting character for us in, in the Bible. And as you know, in the Old Testament especially, there were these pagan leaders that really had appreciation for the people of God. Nebuchadnezzar was one toward the end of his life especially, and Darius here, and there were Cyrus and others as well. So this text also implicitly teaches us, the church, the true saints thereof, that we have a responsibility to come to the aid of sinners, particularly those who are seeking to assist us. I I think this is one of the reasons Paul calls on the church to pray for those in authority over us, as he does in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and following, Um, because that is a ministry too. It's one of the reasons we always pray for our police officers who are taking up such an important role in the kingdom of God. So let us now consider the church's compassion with regard to the way of the world. First, we appreciate those who care about our sufferings, verse 14a. Then the king, Darius, when he heard these words, the words of verse 13, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And again, the words that he heard were the trapping words of the connivers who said, O king, The injunction that you have signed is absolute. Daniel, one of the exiles, he doesn't pay any attention to you. You're trapped now. Now, the pagan king Darius here, I call him pagan at this point, we don't know otherwise, was very upset. But his main perturbation right here, at this point in his life, and the drama and the story, is not with these awful subordinates of his and his administration, those bureaucrats that were spending all their time running around trying to trap Daniel rather than do their job. It was more with the fate and state and condition and well-being of his best servant in the entire realm and his good friend Daniel, who now he knew would be trapped and thrown into the lion's den. The administrators had tricked him into doing something he would have had no desire to do. 
So now the centering of his concern is on Daniel. And those words again from verse 13 remind us that the treacherous conspirators had finally revealed to their king Darius the real reason for this prayer ruse. Okay, at first they come and they flatter him and they pander to him. It's like, you're such a great king, you know, everybody should pray to you, just you, for 30 days. Not any god, none of their man, nothing. Oh, he's, oh yeah, yeah, this sounds pretty good, pretty good. And now they drop the bomb on the poor guy. Oh, look what you did, king. Not going to be a happy king. And Daniel was not only praying, he was doing it three times a day. And not only to just any god, he was praying to the true god, the triune god, the only god that exists, the god that's revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Not to the Medo-Persian or Babylonian gods or any other false gods, but to the actual god. Dears, I might say, and this might be an overstatement, maybe never was a pagan person more properly concerned about prayer and that to the one and only true God than here in this text. All of a sudden, Darius figures out, oh boy. And notice what he did and what he was here in verse 14a. He was, quote, much distressed. It really bugged him. I mean, it wasn't just a little thing. It was a big thing. He was really, really bothered by it. And he set his mind, quote, unquote, set his mind to deliver Daniel. So now that he's heard the injunction, the law, and the fulfillment of it, now he's like, oh, can I, the great king, do anything to undo this problem? We'll be looking at that. Now, think about it. This isn't what self-serving heathen emperors were used to doing in the old days or in the new days. They don't sit around being concerned about other people unless that other person or the people is very special, like the people or church of God. And that's what he's doing here. Just like every one of you who truly love the Lord Jesus Christ, You are so priceless and treasured that the kingdom, the culture, the whole world is blessed by you. And Darius himself could see that. And he did everything in his limited power to help Daniel as much as he could. And we're going to read a little more of that now in the next half verse. We appreciate those who care about our sufferings. And isn't that true? We really should. And it doesn't matter if they're Christians, non-Christians. If they share our concerns, our sufferings, our injustices, and and there are unregenerate human beings endowed with enough common grace in in culture, in government, in positions of authority, workplaces, schools, that have enough common grace to really be concerned about our state. And that's a good thing, and we should appreciate them. Now verse 14b, we applaud, you're seeing some alliteration, applaud those who value our worth. And he, Darius, labored till the sun went down to rescue him, Daniel. So think about this, dears. Those Medo-Persian bureaucrats end up depriving their great high and mighty king of a whole night's sleep. Um, When's the last time you lost a whole night's sleep 
trying to uh, undo a problem like this in some form. It's, it's not a pleasant thing. And now Darius, in the middle of the night, has to call in presumably his court lawyers to have an all-night consultation together with them to see if there was any way conceivable, any way at all, that they could untie this Medo-Persian law knot that had stated that no law could be changed or revoked, that famous characteristic of their stipulations. And of course, after doing everything they could, everything within their authority and purview, it became clear to them that there was nothing they could do. Not even the high and mighty king with all his lawyers around him. There's all of this reminds us of something much more infinitely profound and important than what was going on in the 530s BC in the Medo-Persian Empire. And that was, if you will, our hopeless estate in sin and death and condemnation. How could we ever be extracted from the righteous law of God, which we had broken in Adam and condemned ourselves in him? That law, which had now locked us up as sinners in the prison of our own flesh and destruction. Well, the answer there is required the second person of the Holy Trinity to be incarnate, to become a human being, to come here, identify with us, live a perfect, sinless, law-keeping life, die on the cross for our sins, paying the penalty for our unrighteousness, totally bearing the punishment for us, substituting for us, atoning for us, propitiating the Father's righteous wrath against our sin by bearing it himself, and then imputing to us, our souls, his righteousness. His active righteousness in keeping the law, which we didn't, and Adam didn't, and his passive righteousness in bearing the penalty for us who did not keep the law and shedding his blood for us and then applying that to our hearts. That's how great and glorious this gospel is. You could argue that there was no way out and the angels couldn't figure it out. No one could figure it out, but God and the eternal counsels of the Holy Trinity had already figured it all out. In light of that, I mean, any problem that we might have that seems just absolutely impossible, inconceivable. And I'm not suggesting that God will necessarily remove it. Some kind of affliction, sickness, hardship, maybe not. But the fact is he can sanctify it and turn it for our good, our well-being. That our weakness becomes his opportunity to strengthen us even more. Verse 14b alerts us to the fact that every non-Christ-centered human answer to the problem of sin in the world, no matter how much effort is put into the answer, fails every time. That's what's happening today. One last great push with a false gospel and impose it on everybody, and all our problems will go away. ain't going away. All it does is just add to the problem. Jesus is the only answer. We appreciate those who care about our sufferings. We applaud those who value our worth. And we admire those who submit to God's sovereignty. Verse 15. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, 
Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Now there's, like I said before, there's now nothing that even this great, high, mighty, most powerful man on earth can do about it. By now, we may be sure that Darius is steaming mad. His initial perturbation about Daniel's state now gets turned to these devious, dishonest, dishonorable, and self-serving subordinates of his. You know, the bureaucrats plotting, quote, by agreement. You notice that? By agreement? That's the third time in this story that we've seen that phrase. They show up by agreement to trick the king. They show up by agreement to trap Daniel in his prayer. They show up by agreement here to bring the finality of the goods and get their payment for what they were after altogether. The next time they would come by agreement, however, it wouldn't be their agreement. It would be Darius' insistence and the destination for them, and sadly for all of their family members, would be the bottom of the lion's den, the very place they had hoped to throw Daniel. They will be consumed and all their bones will be broken before they even hit the bottom of the place. And you can read about it in verse 24 of this very text in chapter 6. Now we can appreciate King Darius' submission of even himself, the emperor, to the laws, albeit ill-conceived, of his ancient realm called Medo-Persia. And this is also a tricky dynamic for us Christian churchmen today, as we also are called upon to submit to government as per Romans 13, 1 and following. And that's an important thing. Nevertheless, not when its laws violate God's absolute standards as per Acts 5.29. Let's do a little more application this morning and understand why the true church need never fear the way of the world. Even as the world seeks to convince itself that it has finally, after many millennia, conquered Christ and his church, we know, of course, that it has, in fact, not achieved that goal. And the main thing for us to do is to keep the big picture in mind. Keep a historical context. Last week I reminded you that every eventuality in the entire history of the world, even the fallen world, has resulted in the benefit, furtherment, and goodness for the church, as per Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to those called according to God and for his purpose. All things work together for good. The gospel assures us that Christ has won the victory. He is currently today victorious, and he can never be knocked off his throne. That's the truth of the gospel. He can't be overcome. And we who are with him in and as his redeemed church share in Jesus' full and complete triumph, and we enjoy the treasure chest of who our Messiah is. All this helps explain why the true church need never fear the way of the world. First, because our God has miraculous answers to all our problems. Isn't that wonderful? But it's also a big part of the drama of our Christian lives because all of us sort of default to the natural. We all, I do it, you do it probably too. Every time we have a problem, we're thinking, what's the natural answer to it? And that's okay. And there are natural solutions to some things under God's sovereign providences that aren't that big or 
important or significant. But the reality is that normal answers are not what God's going to ever employ in saving or redeeming or electing or predestinating or, or, or atoning for or applying the benefits of redemption to a human being who becomes a member of the church. God doesn't do that in normal ways. Well, he has means, preaching of the gospel, faithful church, Sunday worship, sacrament, Prayer, he has means, but it's miraculous. And God doesn't employ normal answers usually in blessing the rest of creation in the train of his work in his church as the new heavens and the new earth continue to expand throughout the world and the globe ever since Jesus rose from the dead. As the church grows and spreads into every corner of the universe. Here and now. To be clear, what we're saying is that God resorts to supernatural means to gain his ends. Look at your own life, dear souls, dear friends, dear Christian churchmen, dear parishioners. Would or could you, who are in Christ Jesus today, who are faithful members of the church or on the way to be one, and who love God in Jesus Christ, would you ever be where you are had it not been for God's absolutely improbable and miraculous grace given to you. Every single one of you who are in Christ Jesus today would answer that question, no. Because you know it was a miracle of grace. In some cases, you had the benefit of covenant family, which is a huge miracle of grace. In some cases, you didn't, and that's a big miracle of grace too. But every one of you are in Christ are miracles of grace. Why the true church need never fear the way of the world? Because our God has miraculous answers to all our problems, and all of them are found in Christ. This is the critically important ancillary to Roman 3a above. All of God's miracles are done through the agency and intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ, the divine human one mediator between God and men, 1 Timothy 2.5. And this is because the world was created by the Holy Trinity through the second person of the Holy Trinity, Christ, who is the Word of God. So God creates the world through the Word of God, Jesus Christ himself. That was the design of the Holy Trinity. And now the Word of God, who bore the crown of thorns on his brow on the cross, now has upon him the crown as the king of the whole church and the entire universe. And I might reference for you Colossians 1, 15 through 20. So in light of all this glorious truth and gospel, what are we going to do and what are we going to believe? Where are we going to put most of our thought, our heart, our soul? In the news of the day, which can be appropriate to know and look at or in the Christ of the gospel, who always is, always was, always will be, the glorious Lord and King. How are we going to handle our troubles and trials, which we really do have and we really have to face, and those that confront the rest of the world? Should we wring our hands in fear? Should we be all scared and worried and heading for the hills, like a lot of people are, at least symbolically? No, no, we shouldn't do that. We should trust Christ 
we should live confident, childlike lives of faith in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we should recognize that Christ's cross assures us, the elect church of the Redeemer, that all our sins are forgiven. And Christ's resurrection assures us that we have triumphed with him. We're raised up with him. We're more than conquerors through him. Romans 8.37 His victory is ours. We possess our victory in him. Beloved, the way of the world is devious, slippery, sly, manipulative, and otherwise impossible for us to overcome on our own. It is. We ought to admit it. We're no match for it. Really, no match on our own against Satan himself. But in our Savior, we, his church, have totally overwhelmed the way of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that glorious fact. It is true. We have overwhelmed it. This King Darius was in a, a trap, a snare. He couldn't get out. We were too in our sins. There was no way out. The law of God had condemned us. There was no way we could keep it. There was no way we could be righteous or just before you. But you sent your son who did it all for us. Thank you you didn't send your son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the elect members from it, every tribe, nation, people. Make one church out of it. We thank you that the way of the world is here because it's a good foil against us to cause us to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for that blessed Messiah, and we pray in his name. Amen.